The Talking to Ourselves podcast is brought to you by The One Club, the world's leading nonprofit organization recognizing creative excellence in advertising and design. Hey, I'm Omid Farhang, Chief Creative Officer at Momentum, broadcasting from the well-appointed penthouse of JSM Music in Soho. Today, I'm talking to Andrew Keller, Global Creative Director of The Creative Shop, a team of creative strategists within Facebook and Instagram that partners with brands, businesses, and agencies. Before that, Andrew spent his career at Crispin Porter Bogusky, playing a vital role in building one of the industry's all-time greatest legacies, winning every award known to man, including Agency of the Decade. Look, if you sense me gushing a little bit during this talk, it's because Andrew was one of the most important mentors I've had in my career. He gave me opportunities I didn't quite deserve when I first started at CPB. He taught me work ethic and perseverance. And in the years while I was figuring out my own management style, the way I bridged the gap in times of struggle was by doing my best impersonation of Andrew. So how's that for an influence? All right, this is Andrew Keller and I talking to ourselves. <laughs> well, you've been able to leverage um, your position in advertising to selfishly get to work with some of your favorite rock idols. And I assume growing up that you wanted to be a rock star. Man, I have gotten to work with a lot of those people like Eddie Van Halen I got to meet. Slash, I got to meet Ozzy. I got to meet. Um, I had we had a shoot with Metallica, and I didn't go to that. We haven't worked with Rush, um, but that's like or Led Zeppelin. So those are two that I missed. But that was awesome. But it's always weird, you know, because like they don't like they don't have the same feeling about you that you have for them. <laughs> so it's like a weird environment, but. I was actually playing, we used to play gigs for clients. So we were playing a gig for Domino's uh, at Vegas. So the whole band has decided to come play Vegas for this Domino's convention. And we decided, you know, well, we'll dress up and we'll be this all-star band. And so I was going to be uh, Eddie Van Halen. So as it turns out, about a week before the gig, I get a call that says, we were working with the Guitar Hero. And they're like can you come uh, meet with Eddie Van Halen? I'm like, yes, I can meet with Eddie Van Halen. They're like, tomorrow? I'm like, absolutely. They call me back. It's going to have to be the next day. Can you meet? I'm like, absolutely. You know, they just kept moving the date. I'm like, not a problem. Like, I was not going to miss meeting with Eddie Van Halen. By the way, the meeting was at his studio, right? It was at 5150 Studios. So it's like, this is totally insane at this point. Um, finally, they keep moving the date till they move the date to the same day as the gig that we're playing for Domino's in Vegas. And I'm like, well, now I've got two clients in the mix. What am I going to do? So I decide I can just fly to L.A., do that meeting, then fly back to Vegas and do the gig. So, all right, we can work that out. So I had bought a guitar that was a sort of a replica of Eddie Van Halen's guitar for the gig because I wanted to do it right. So then I just took it with me to meet with him. And it was just fun at the end. I said, you know, Eddie, the strangest thing is that actually tonight I'm going to be playing a gig as you. And I happen to have the guitar. Would you mind signing it? And I just remember thinking, this is the weirdest thing I've ever said to somebody, especially somebody that I've idolized for a large part of my life. And so he was very gracious about it. And uh, he came over. He, I pulled the guitar out. And he, like, starts looking at it and starts adjusting it. You know, he's like, you got the bridge set up wrong and starts, like, making adjustments to it. Uh, and I gave him a Sharpie. And he starts to sign it. And the Sharpie dies. And he's like, you got another Sharpie? Yes, I do. I had packed my bag and my jacket with Sharpies. I was like, I will not miss this moment. And so I pulled out another Sharpie and I got him to sign it. And then I went to the gig, flew back to the gig and played as Eddie Van Halen that night with a signed Eddie Van Halen guitar. So those sort of moments were amazing. The time that we worked with Slash, that was kind of a, that was a weird moment because 
the idea there was that we wanted to we had a guitar working with first act that would plug in to the car uh you could plug it in the volkswagen you could play it through the speakers and so we, we were looking for guitar players to do it and so slash was one that said he'd do it and so we show up at the studio slash isn't there and all of a sudden i hear this beep beep and this truck pulls up and it's all his gear and it's his guitar tech and i'm like he does know that he's playing this first act guitar and he's playing it in a and he's playing it in a car he doesn't need any of this gear and uh He's like, no, we didn't know that. And he sets up all Slash's gear like he's going to play through it. Slash comes in and he's like, I'm not doing that, you know. And I'm like, it's me and him. And, like, I've got to convince him of this. And I remember he looked at me and he said, when are you corporate guys going to get it? And that was just, oh, so it was the opposite, right? Like, I'm finally meeting someone who I really respect as a guitar player. And he looks at me as a corporate guy. And I kind of got angry and, like, you know, got in his face just a little bit and was like, look, I'm not the corporate guy, you know, but thought you were going to do this. You know, it's fine if you don't want to do it. I said, you know, but what has Gibson done for you? You know? Mm. And uh, he was like, well, let me take a look. I took him outside to see the, it was plugged into a Beetle. And he's like, that's pretty cool. And he warmed up to it and started playing. He played the thing and then we ended up shooting it. And afterwards um, he said, yeah, this really lit a fire. Uh, under uh, under their ass, and next thing you know, he's had guitars and um, a lot of signature stuff. So I don't think it was directly tied to that, but um, that was just a really interesting experience to have Slash calling and saying, like, you know, asking me about, like, is there are there gonna be any lines? Could I have a line in it? And it's just like this is surreal, you know, yeah. like stepping out of brunch with my family to talk to <laughs> Slash was not anything I expected I'd be doing in this business. And the world doesn't want Slash to have a line. No, he's got a look. He doesn't need a line, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, if you've got that much look, just be an image. It's a know? real art form in our job, and there's no training for it until you're on set with a hero of yours. And in fact, like your personal taste, if you're doing the job right, is inevitably going to show up in your work and the people that you cast. Um, and there's a real art form to showing this person who maybe you've idolized for two decades, that you're professional and that you're additive to their career or, you know, in some way, but you also don't want to be so distant that you miss the moment. I haven't really gotten to do the personal thing. Like I've more been in a position where I have to kind of be the bad guy. And that's, that's actually better for me. Cause like, then I'm not like acting weird, like a fan, you know, but like, I remember we were shooting with Alec Baldwin and he's like, this line, it's like, it's too long. How am I supposed to say this whole line? Like, it's just impossible, you know? And I turn around, the director's gone and the writer's gone. And I'm standing there and he's looking at me. And I just said, Alec, isn't that really your gift, though? And he was like, okay, I'll give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> and he nailed it because it was his gift. That's what he did. He could take long lines and, like, turn them into something amazing. But, but like, you have to – that's the hardest thing when you meet – people that you respect and idolize in the business is that you're probably going to have to give them like bad news, right. you know, that I'm Gene Simmons. I mean, I met with Gene Simmons. Oh my goodness. And he plays this song that is like a new theme song that he's written for a brand. And I'm thinking I'm sitting here with like one of my great idols in music, Gene Simmons. And I'm going to have to tell him that this is absolutely terrible. <laughs> And fortunately, Alex Bogusky was there, so I didn't have to. <laughs> yeah. Came even got, easier to him than to you. Yeah, because he did. He didn't, you know, have any great love for Gene, for Gene Simmons. Yeah. Like I'm always interested in what people loved or what they followed or what inspired them. 
sort of before they knew that this was a business, because those are the influences and the things that are going to make them the only them in the business. Yeah. It definitely is true for you and, and your musical influences. Yeah. I mean, but I was passionate about advertising, you know, but like, you know, I say like everything I knew about advertising, I learned from kiss and the Catholic church, you right. know, um, like just amazing communities with amazing iconography, with amazing, you know, with strong messages and like things that grab you. So, you know, most things that I was interested in probably had a marketing bent. I mean, Kiss was all marketing, you know, so like, and I would trace their logo, you know, all day long. So, but I did, I do think that, you know, it's not about majoring in advertising, you know, um, I was an English major, I was pre-med and I've always done a lot of bands and singing. Um, and, you know, when my dad asked me what was the thing that had most, probably has helped me the most in my life, and I think it was playing in a band, you know, learning to collaborate with a few people, um, put together a set list, practicing the discipline of that, you know, putting on a show, having the sort of being comfortable in front of people and performing, um, which is not really what a parent necessarily wants to hear when a lot of money has been spent on education, but, but I learned a lot. I learned a lot, uh, from that, I would say, but anyway, it's always been about advertising. For me, advertising started in the third grade when, um, it was career day and someone came in and they showed a commercial for mellow yellow. Um, and the commercial was, um, a race car driver drove around the track and then chugged the Mellow Yellow when he won. And the concept was that Mellow Yellow was a car- carbonated beverage, but at the time, you couldn't, or not at the time, ever, you can't chug a carbonated beverage. So they had Mellow Yellow meant it had low carbonation so you could, so that you could chug it. And so I was like, wow, that's so incredible. Like this, I saw a strategy connected to like the idea and how it expressed that. And like at that age, I was already thinking like advertising was interesting to me. Um, but I was, I'm also made like, you know, movies and films, super eight, I had a super eight camera and I grew up on like essentially three cul-de-sacs. So there were just kids everywhere. And so we would get together and we would make movies with the super eight camera. And then we'd cut that. We had a splicer and we could cut the film. Um, and, and so we were doing all kinds of, we were engaged in all kinds of creative, uh, activities, you know, ultimately, it's the experiences that you bring to advertising and your understanding of people and your interest in people more than like your knowledge of marketing and advertising in my, in my opinion. Yeah. The chugging thing is, is funny. The mo- maybe the most famous commercial ever is Mean Joe Green and Coca-Cola and he slugs that Coca-Cola. And I always <laughs> found that really strange. And recently I saw some like mini, documentary about the shooting of that commercial and they were giving him real Cokes and he was a big guy and he felt obligated to drink the whole thing. So he was, you know, slugging a full bottle of Coke on every take. And apparently the, the shoot was like triple the length that it needed to be because he couldn't say the lines without burping. (laughs) That's pretty funny. Yeah. That was a great commercial, but yeah, you can't chug Coke. You can't chug Coke. Like I could have told you that. Yeah. Um, Okay, so I want to ask you a little bit about Crispin Porter, Crispin Porter in the early days. Um, how did you get there, and what was the agency that you arrived at? What was what did it feel like when you showed up there? Man, it's a long, long story. I was at Portfolio Center, um, and uh, a buddy of mine was just crazy for Crispin Porter. I think it was just Crispin Porter at the time. 
and he was trying to get a job there, and <clears throat> it just hadn't worked out. And he graduated a quarter earlier than me from Portfolio Center. And so he um, he ends up getting a job at the Martin Agency. Of course, that day, Alex Pugosky calls him and says, hey, do you want to come work at Crispin? He's like, I just took a job at the Martin Agency, dude. He's like, oh, okay. He's like, do you know anybody else? And he's like, yeah, I know a guy. So that was me. And so I went down there. And I don't know what I was doing there. I was like <clears throat> freelancing. I didn't know. Like I was still kind of in – at Portfolio Center and I was there over the weekend and it was just this really weird thing and I met this guy and I didn't think it was an interview but as it turns out it was an interview and I didn't get the job and so um, that was the end of that later on I ended up getting a job in Portland Oregon at a place called AKA Advertising um, and working with with uh, Tom Van Ness and we had gotten a little disillusioned there and wanted to try something else and um and so Tom's like, well, you know the guys at Crispin. And so I'm like, yeah, um, I'll give him a call. So we go down there and um, we go into the interview. And that's where Alex would always ask the classic interview. It's like, if you weren't doing advertising, what would you do? Um, and you were supposed to say, this is what I want to do. I wouldn't do anything else. And like, but people would just epically fail. And by the way, that's that a ridiculous question. answer. Well, but, you know. well, if I if I wasn't in advertising, I'd probably just kill myself. I mean, there's nothing else. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I shouldn't question perhaps, the techniques. Perhaps, I shouldn't. but yeah, exactly. Like what happened? Well, it was more like all the questions that we would ask, right? Like it wasn't exactly the it wasn't exactly the answer as to like what that answer might reveal. You know, we'd ask a lot about like what your sign was. I didn't know anything about astrology, and like, but people would be very forthcoming about themselves. Like, so you, uh, I'm a Sagittarius. Oh, are you? A, are you a typical Sagittarius? Like, oh no, no, no. Sagittarians are very kind and giving, and I can be a real pain in the ass. And it's like that's interesting, you know. <laughs> so, um, so same thing there. It's like you could say like, well, I might do this, but like, but people would would typically take it as like, oh, I'm gonna nail this question, and they'd get really passionate about it, you know. And so I remember Tom like I'd be I'd already had this question the first time I interviewed, right? So I kind of knew not to go there, and I was like, oh, you know, I really like advertising, um, and, and Tom was like. Um, you know, man, I want to be a dive instructor down in, you know, the Keys and all this stuff. And Alex was like, well, maybe you ought to do that, you know, <laughs> which was, that was never what you were hoping to hear. Um, anyway, so, um, I remember like we left the interview and we hadn't heard anything and I'd actually decided I was going to start a agency with some, with some other people. And, uh, and, uh, I'd sort of accepted that. And then, of course, Alex calls. But before that, um, I remember I was like, what am I going to do to like get this job? And we had had a Halloween party. And um, I had dressed as Robin, like Batman and Robin, more like the TV version of Robin. And we had done bobbing for apples. And so I had gotten like water all over my costume. And I was holding a bottle of tequila. Not that I was drinking it, but I was holding the bottle of tequila. And I was like, you know, doing one of my, you know, my sort of devil horns and my tongue out typical sort of You've been doing that photo. for that long, huh? It's been going on for a long time, huh. yeah. Yeah. And uh, I got that picture and I just wrote whatever it takes and like sent that to Bogoski. Ultimately, I got hired and when I got there, that was up on his door. He would always put up weird things on his door and that was on the door and I was like, mm, that's interesting. Like, told me a little bit about what I was getting into. But it was a different place. Uh, I mean, it was a very small place. I mean, it was exciting, but 
there was still a lot of momentum to come. I mean, when I got there, they were just about to put out uh, the truth work, um, start putting out truth work. Um, and the one, what was it called? The uh, Devil Awards or I forget what it was called, but it was where it's like, who's the most evil person? And like and the tobacco executive ends up winning, you know, against all these other characters that are there at this Academy Awards of, of evilness. And uh, I was just so blown away by the strategy because the strategy was not, you know, smoking gives you bad breath or you need to stop smoking or you'll die. You know, the insight was the fact that a cigarette had really become a symbol of independence um, and like, and the, and one's, taking control over their life. And the more you said that it might kill you, the better, because it made me look even more like I had made a difficult decision. So the strategy to really turn it and say, actually a cigarette is a symbol of you being manipulated by all these people uh, was, I thought, a powerful insight. Because I thought most anti-smoking advertising was alienating cigarette smokers. And so I thought, that doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. But anyway... That was launching, and the strategy there was the thing. I was like, wow, that is powerful strategy. Like, I want to be a part of that. Um, and then it just it just seemed like there were just really surprising solutions to every brief that came in, and it was, it was a great time. Was there a campaign that felt like it sort of turned it all around for you? Not turned it all around for you. Was there a campaign that felt like it was sort of the turning point in your career from which there was no going back? Um, no going back. How? Like, like I, like I always felt like, like your value to the organization and your sort of alignment with the creative vision of the agency. I mean, there was a lot of people there and, um, you took on a pretty trusted role. It seems like pretty soon after you were hired. The thing that happened for me was, um, I remember Alex came to me and said, Hey, I want you to like we gotta we gotta we gotta figure out our new business materials because we gotta send them to all these places like select resources and stuff. And I remember thinking, oh, man, like I don't want to do that. Like that's not like it's not gonna go in my book, you know. And I'd felt that about a lot of things. Like there've been ideas that I participated in, and then I wasn't gonna get to work on them, and I was like, and I was. And I was like, I don't really want to feel that way. You know, I don't like that feeling. I'm going to abandon that feeling. I'm going to work on the behalf of the agency. I want to make this agency as successful as I can. And hopefully that will work out because I don't want to be this weird competitive person with everybody else. And so I was like, yes, I would love to do the new business materials. And it turned out that that was a real, that was an important moment because first, like, I was able to design them very quickly, and that established a good relationship between um, Alex and myself. But in doing so, I learned about all the work the agency had done, and I had to had to be able to you know write about all the strategy that existed. Um, and so that was really important because it enabled me to be able to go into meetings and speak about the agency and speak about the work. It helped me understand the agency's point of view. Um, and so that was a big moment and it really wasn't a piece of work. And I think it's important that it wasn't like a piece of work actually in terms of my story and, and how things worked out for me, because it was a moment of realizing that the best way forward is to be as useful as you can to the people that have, you know, hired you. 
when people ask me what it was like to work with you, I tell them this anecdote that um, I was an intern and I had sort of forced my way into your office to share some ideas with you about Volkswagen. And it was probably about seven o'clock at night. Um, and you take the document and you start reading every paragraph that I wrote. I wrote out loud um, and highly animated and really slow, um, which sort of accentuated what was good about good ideas and revealed the laziness or absurdity of a really shitty idea. But in between reading these paragraphs, your wife was calling. So you'd be reading and you were making this fun and you were sort of like, you know, this felt normal to me at the time because it's all I knew. Later on, as you work with other people, you go like, actually, what happens is people sort of read quietly and skim to themselves and sort of tell you what they like and what they don't. But you were reading big, animated, and then your wife would call and you pick up the phone and you go, hey, baby. Yep. I'm going to be uh, be home in uh, probably, probably 10 minutes, probably about 10, 12 minutes. And then you hang up. And then you get right back into it, read slower, read bigger. And I'm going, there's no way we're going to get through this document. He's going to be home in 10 and 15, 10 or 15 minutes. But I sort of summarize that with like, of any person I ever worked with, I feel like you are the one who is most intoxicated by the creative process. <laughs> I, you know, I, I don't, that's a funny story. I mean, I think it just demonstrated how bad I was with time. You know? <laughs> it's like, I'll be home in 10 minutes. Like, like I've gotten a little bit better at that, but not a lot better, you know? Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's interesting because that was definitely, you know, philosophically something I would have gotten from Alex because he always had time for ideas. Yeah. It didn't matter. He wasn't going anywhere. Like, let's talk about this, you know? And uh, I think that's an, that's really important and people really appreciate that. And ideas take time and they take that kind of investment. And I think there's an also related to that is an ability to completely focus and to get kind of lost and buried in another world that you're creating with someone and that you're talking about. And like, that's, that's, that's an important thing. Ultimately, I think that became a struggle for me, actually, uh, because I would say, you know, I just, I can't walk into that room because the room represented a place where if you go into that room, that's how you have to be. You have to have all the time in the world for ideas. And so it be it's became increasingly difficult to walk, to go into the room because I knew I couldn't be what I needed to be in that room. And so it's been a matter of like trying to you know, change the way I work, but also like pick and choose the moments that you go into the, you go into the room because that sort of dedication um, and immersion, maybe more than dedication, is what I believe can drive great thinking. Yeah. You know? There's so many distractions in an agency that it's easy to lose sight of the fact that like, if we don't have time for the idea part, then what's the point? What yeah. you describe is, I mean, it's so true of you and Alex. I always felt like you know, I'd show up to his office to review work five minutes early just to be ready. And in that five minutes, I would have the most horrific, awkward small talk. It's like, okay, like you're a very wealthy, accomplished person. Uh, I'm someone who's made nothing. Like you love fun boarding. I like team sports. Like we have nothing in common and there's nothing to small talk about. And then it's time to get to work and suddenly time slows down. And I'm thinking like, I need to speed up. I need to be prepared. I need to be as, as efficient as possible yeah. to get in and out of this guy's office because he probably has something more important to do. And he and you would both sort of have this way of kicking up your feet um, and and communicating through your, your body language that like there's sort of no place you'd rather be. Um, and then the funny yeah. thing that he would do to sort of make up for some of that time is like, 
he wouldn't end the meeting. He would just stand up and leave his own office. And that's how you knew the meeting was over. <laughs> that's how I had to leave yeah. you know, back in the day. It was like, I would just, at some point I would just stand up and I would literally run out, yeah. you know, so that like I couldn't be stopped. You know, it was yeah. like, I'd hit a wall. Um, it's funny because Alex was more like that than I was. Like I tend to be a little bit like, you know, let's get going on this thing. And like, I would always try to start and he's like, Hey, just like, let's ease, ease into it. It's like, you don't just walk in and pick up 300 pounds, you know? And I always, I always loved that metaphor. But the other thing I think about the process in general is that silence and thinking is really important. And I noticed it as, you know, as phones became a part of our lives that like, when we'd sit here and you'd say like, yeah, that could be cool. And then you'd stop and you'd think for a minute. And like, we'd be silent for a long time. I mean, a group of five or 10 people could be in there. It'd be silent until someone felt like they had something to meaningfully add. Like everybody was like trying to like add the next brick to the thing. And I noticed later on what would happen is within si when there was silence, people go to their phones. And so in those moments, it's like you have to, you have to protect the sort of power of silence that it like you want to run away from it, pulling out your phone is running away from it, but there's tension in that silence. And that silence is what drives you to actually come up with ideas. You want to end that silence, come up with something smart to say, you know, and if you can't, then it's going to be quiet for a while, but we're not going anywhere until we solve this thing. So all that tension's, you know, really important. I think tension in general is important in the process, you know, like we, like we work on a project and like, I don't think we're going to solve this thing. And then, you know, I'd find out later, somebody went to the account person, the account person would say, great news, I got us two more days. And I'm like, no, <laughs> why did you do that? You know, because that tension is like, you know, is what drives the, is what forces the ideas out. You know, without it, the volcano never erupts. You know, I was like, you know, it's in school, you know, you're in school and you're studying and you're like, oh man, I got this test and you're studying and studying. And you're like, finally you go, you know what? I got to pull an all nighter. And I would say that to people and say, what's the first thing you do when you say, I'm going to pull an all-nighter? You go, like, get a Coke, you go get cup, some corn nuts, coffee, yeah. right? Because is that at that, but at that point, you're like, oh, now I get a break and because I got more time now. Right. And the time ends up reducing the productiveness of that sort of session. So um, anyway. I've heard Seth Meyers describe it. Um, at Saturday Night Live, he says, you know, the beginning of the week, there's all this pressure and you're competing not only against the other people in the cast, but against sort of the ghost of Christmas past of Saturday Night Live greats. And you you start the week by trying to write the greatest sketch in the history of the show. And then a day goes by and two days go by. And the good thing about the creative mind is like procrastination is part of the process and your brain yeah. never does start stop working but eventually it gets to a part where you lower your expectations and go i better probably just start putting some words on a page <laughs> and lo and behold like you know one word becomes a sentence a sentence becomes a page and some good things start to happen but you were you were fighting that pressure you know that same pressure like i've got to do the next greatest ad ever right and i think that can you know paralyze you and make you make bad decisions that's the comedy of it is you stay up and work until four in the morning 
And then it's not like your brain just fires up and you sit back down at your desk at eight thirty or nine and have a pretty. So it's this, you know, it's this. Yeah. Um, well, this, you gotta, this cycle. You got to figure. You have to understand that cycle. Yeah. Um, you don't get more time. You're just now going to lose time in the morning. And what's important, I think, as a creative person, is to understand where, like, when you're at your creative best. Right. What days of the week? What times of the day? Um, you've got to you got to start taking stock of that for everybody. It's different. Um, but know when you're going to be at your creative best and make sure you protect that time. You, know? you mentioned the phone and it, it is actually interesting. I was thinking about, um, the way that the emergence of smartphones aligned with the legendary run of CPB and CPB people were the first ones I ever saw to all have smartphones in their hands. And it was like this rite of passage when you got hired there and other agencies weren't handing these out. Um, but it became a great way to trick people into thinking, into having this this feeling of like um, elevated importance because they have this awesome device that no one else has. But what it really means is uh, this now allows us to have you work nonstop. <laughs> well, that's a little bit cynical of me, but, <laughs> but yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're, I think, I think that's right. I mean, CPB really embraced the handing out of technology for people to use. There's no question. There's no question about it. And it did enable us to work, you know, all the time. But, you know, it's like you can kind of put a spin on anything, right? Like, uh, you know, we had food at the agency, um, you know, before the Facebooks and Googles had food. And people would say, well, that's, you know, you've got that so so you don't leave. I always thought, like, well, no, you're here to be the best ever. You're ambitious, you know. Let's make sure you can be as ambitious as you want to be. Here's food if you want it. It wasn't like the food means you can't leave. Right. The food means we're here to support you in your quest to be amazing. So I think it was different. I think people were there, you know, to be – to do something incredible and so, um, like the tools definitely, um, I think played a, played a huge role. We see that all that we see that all the time that technology, you know, comes onto the scene and people that just embrace it end up benefiting from it, yeah. you know, have an advantage. You worked more closely with Alex than anyone and he was your primary mentor. What did he teach you about the creative process that will always stick with you? Oh man. I don't, you know, this is one of those questions that I always, I, I think I'm probably going to get, and I never have a good answer to it. I mean, I think some of the things that we've talked about, you know, the just, the commitment that you have to have to immersing yourself in an idea, the comfort that you have to have with the silence. Um, and I think the thing that I had the most when I was there was, having faith in the process. Mm -hmm. I had total faith in the process. I never thought for a second we wouldn't come up with something brilliant. And I didn't think it, it wasn't like, oh, we're going to run out of time. What are we going to do? Or like, it didn't happen tonight. You know, like I just, it was going to happen. I never knew how it would happen. And it often happened in very strange ways, you know, in surprising ways. I mean, I remember working all night I mean, all day, all weekend on, uh, on mini when we were working on the pitch and I was like there all day. And I was like, I've got to go, I've got to leave for like 10 minutes. I had something like I had to do 
Um, and I was like, I've got to get out of here. And I came back and Bill Wright's like, Hey, we got this, uh, this line, you know, let's motor. What do you think? And I was like, genius. Like, that's it. That's perfect. And you had to be sort of like, it was at that point where like, I just learned like, you never know when it's going to show up. You might not be there when it shows up. You know, you want to be there when it shows up, but like, ultimately that's not important. Um, but that's where I just learned to have faith in the process. You know, it's like, it's, it's going to happen and you have to have that confidence. Otherwise fear creeps in and fear is that thing that just sort of screws up all your thinking. It's the thing that paralyzes people and locks them up. You know, you've got to, you've got to be able to work effortlessly. So I think, you know, there was that sort of, in uh, the sort of faith in the process, uh, was instilled. Um, you know, now as I talk a little bit more, I mean, I think that this, um, well, there are so many, actually there are so many things now that's all sort of rushing in. I remember, uh, when I was there freelancing, interviewing the first time and I'd been to ad school, right. And I'd learned all these sort of like what a good ad was, right. And like what the rules are and like logos are small and all, all these things that like nobody notices, but like, you know, we hold the sort of the craft police sort of hold dear, like how an idea works. And, um, we were working on something like Heineken and I don't know what my ideas were. And Alex had an idea that was like, um, what if we, what was it? It was, um, what's his face? Uh, my way. Who sings my way? Frank Sinatra. Yeah. So Alex has this idea, you know, we're going to have Frank Sinatra, you know, show up on this, you know, Island. Cause this was for like, um, where was this for? I'm screwing up the story badly, but it was like an Island somewhere in the you know middle of the Caribbean because that was where the advertising was going to run. And he's going to be there and he's going to be this big performance of my way. And like, that'll be the idea. And I was like thinking to myself, that is the worst idea I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. And then I was just like, but why not? But maybe it's not right. Like we are, we are going to, we're communicating with people that are on this island. What a big deal that Frank Sinatra has come and he's going to sing my way there. And so I spent a lot of time, I mean, thinking, why is this idea right? right. To sort of help change my gut and change the way I thought. And Alex's background as a designer, I think, played huge into it because being a designer, you think about packaging and you think about, you know, what a, what a product means and what it can say, not just messaging that's going to go with it. And so to create an event as a solution to a problem versus like to write a script that was going to have all the right bits in it that I was expecting, you know, that was, that was important. Um, and then obviously I talked about truth and the insights there. Um, but I think like, you know, tension and understanding that, like, there, there's an ability to, like, you know, move people's opinions and, and drive their behavior by challenging conventions and forcing them to question what they believe and what they think. Um, and that has definitely, you know, been a huge part of all the work that we've done. It's so interesting to hear what you learned from him because what you learned from him, I definitely learned from you when you talk about um, finding the good in the idea. The, the more I sort of like 
you know, move forward and engage with people in the industry, the more you realize sitting in front of a, a deck full of ideas and pointing out what's wrong is actually not, mm. not that um, sought after of a skill and anyone can do it. The real skill is sitting down and telling a 25-year-old copywriter who's never made a thing in their life why something might be good or like why this idea is not quite right, but there's this, the third sentence in this 19-sentence paragraph circle that and work on that tonight. That's really yeah. fucking good. Um, and what that does is you send that person out of the room, maybe not knowing the next 15 steps or where this is all headed, but at least they know what to do between today and when they see you tomorrow. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, I mean, anybody can say an idea isn't good. It's hard to sort of put yourself out there and say, that is a good idea. And that was the scariest part about being a creative director, right? Like, like the p- people are coming in showing you work and they're scared because they're like, are they going to like anything? Well, the person looking at it is scared. Am I going to know what's good? Am I going to know what's bad? Am I going to be able to communicate any of that? That was definitely a part of the process where work that was good got a star next to it. And we only talked about work that was good. Right. We never talked about work that was bad. And people that were like, yeah, but what about the one? Like that was frowned upon. <laughs> you know, it was oh, like, I know. It was like <laughs> you know, move on. Like you've got three great things. Let's keep going on that, you know? And I think that, you know, that was that sort of positivity um, is pretty powerful in the creative process and necessary. Um, you promoted me to creative director. I started to be in more client meetings, and I really struggled with referring to Crispin Porter as we. I had only been at the company for a couple of years. The legacy of the company had been well forged well before I got there. I was just trying to make whatever small contribution to it that I could. And I, when I confided this to you, I remember you telling me, you know, not only do I encourage you to say we, but it's your job in those meetings to represent not just yourself, but the company. So you need to say, we did counterfeit mini, we did truth. Um, so my question to you is a year into being at Facebook, are you comfortable <laughs> saying we yet? Good question. Great question. It's funny. Uh, that's a big part of Facebook culture is like, it's your company now. Um, because, you know, as, as intimidating as CPB might be, Facebook can be even more intimidating for people. Um, and like, you really do have to, um, you really have to, uh, own it. Um, you know, I, like, I guess the short answer to that question is yes, I, I do say we, and I feel comfortable saying that, but I do think about it. I probably think about that every day. Like, am I like, am I like Facebook, Facebook? Am I saying we, or am I saying Facebook? Um, it's just that like. There are just days where you think about Facebook and how amazing it is and, and how far its reach is and the number of people that it touches. And it's hard to kind of try to take any ownership of all that. Um, and so I totally understand that perspective now, but I totally feel comfortable saying um, we. Yeah. Can you just explain a little bit about what the creative shop is and how it operates. Oh, wow. Yes, I can. I mean, thanks for asking. You know, the creative shop is, you know, is about helping clients and agencies, you know, bring to life amazing ideas on the platform. That's the, that's the, that's really our focus. So we do that by, you know, sometimes it's just consulting. Sometimes it's collaborating through hacks and sometimes it's, you know, co-creating together with them with briefs, working on the, um, 
you know, working across uh, all the mediums or even working in hackathons with um, product people and launching new products together um, to do that. We're in about 40 offices around the world. We're close to like, 200 people. Um, and so, you know, in some ways that's a lot of people, but it's not that many people when you consider the sort of this industry that is advertising. Um, and so, you know, we just try to be a great partner in any way that we can to make amazing work happen on the platform. Um, working with the biggest brands in the world today often requires a lot of interagency collaboration and those agencies need to work together and simultaneously sort of sometimes also need to work in competition. And then when the creative shop and Facebook joins that mix, do you find that it's difficult at first to um, disarm agencies from not being defensive about one more person at the table? You know, I actually think that we play the role of the glue in those in those situations, right? When we bring people together for hacks, we're bringing together media agencies, we're bringing together creative agencies, sometimes more than one creative agency. We're bringing the client together. And so we're really the glue in that situation um, and leading that process, if you will. And so I think in those situations, you know, it's it's less that we are – another person that is potentially something, someone to worry about or to, or to be challenged by. And it's more like, yeah, how can you help us all work together? I think people really appreciate that. And, and I, I think, think that, you know, anybody that has worked with us in Creative Shop um, would more likely would say they want to work with us again or they, they see a, us as a secret weapon or an advantage, I would hope, in the, in the sort of search of great ideas that you know, and bringing into life on the, on the platform. So I think anybody that's worked with us that goes away immediately. Um, so I don't spend too much time worrying about that. Yeah. I feel like the, as companies, as you work with large companies and as you work with large agencies, it's all the more important to shrink those worlds down through personal relationships. And that's a huge part of your job at creative shop is leveraging relationships that you've had in, um, in, the agency world and in the business world for, you know, close to 20 years now and sort of shrinking that world down. Um, has it been, has it been funny or ironic or interesting to switch from having certain people who you viewed as sort of healthy competitors to now people who you're trying to help and be allies to? That's, it's been amazing. I'm a little surprised by it actually, because if I think back about, you know, our story at Crispin, we were these disruptors and it was like, New York, ugh, please, you right. know, and it was like, we're in Miami and then we were in Boulder and like, you know, we, we were, we were the disruptor, the opposite to everything. Um, I didn't care about the rest of the industry um, or we wanted to basically mess with the industry. That was our goal. Um, and so, but, you know, you find out that's just sort of like, you know, it's this thing that drove you and it's this way that you thought. But I also spent a lot of time with meeting people at award shows and finding out that like, wow, as creative people and as creative people, particularly in advertising, we have so much more in common <laughs> that like makes us like each other <laughs> than we have with like the rest of the world. So a lot of that goes away pretty fast because you have so many unique shared experiences and it's really been more a surprise, to, a really pleasant surprise to find myself in rooms with 
people that I would have never been in rooms with them, you know, yeah. um, and getting to see how they think and, and getting to work with them or seeing how they even like present and like talking about ideas with them. Um, that's like, that is definitely one of the real, you know, joys of the job. I mean, I remember like on day two or something, Darcy grabs me and is like, hey, we're working on this thing with Nick Law. Come in here. And I walk in and like Nick Law's on the VC and like You know I'm him like, better than anyone else yeah. in the room who you work with. <laughs> but I'm like, like, I can't like I can't work with Nick Law. Like <laughs> like I I know Nick and I and I love Nick. I like Nick a lot. But it's like, but you know, it was this, it was that was the first moment where it's like, wait, Nick's like a mortal enemy to like and I was like, no, it's like this is hilarious. So that ended up being that was the one time where I had that sort of, you know, hitch where it was like, wait a second, is this, am I allowed to do this? Like, and, uh, that, ended, that was a great experience. And so it's been, um, it's been really amazing to get to, to work with all, all these people that I've known or have heard of. Um, that's a lot of fun. I asked because as I got a better understanding of what the creative shop does, I couldn't help, but, um, sort of cross-reference that with what I know of you to be one of the most competitive people I've ever met in my life. Oh, really? And so just, I always thought like, it must be really interesting that this guy is in rooms with people who he woke up in the morning setting out to destroy. And I was like, I'm here to help. I mean, am I competitive? Like, it's so funny. Like, I think that I am, but like, I totally... See what well, you're doing right now. I'm not. What you're doing right now, you're being like <laughs> light and easy and giggly. The competitiveness that I would describe to people is like we're headed into a client meeting. We're in their lobby. The presentation should be done, done, and we should have sort of a calm, confident energy. But you're leafing through the PDF and you're sending instructions back to people that they they could never possibly change <laughs> in time for a meeting starting in five minutes, and you're. You're maybe you're pissed at me because I you told me to you asked me to do something and I slipped through the cracks and shit man I shot oh my I ruined the whole thing we're walking in and all of a sudden we walk in the room we meet with the clients and it's light easy not a care in the world answer <laughs> oh, what's up everybody it's all good hey. and I just remember being like this is an incredible skill to be able to toggle from that level of intensity to that level of ease with a with a that's you know, funny that's probably true I don't know if that's competitiveness but I think I am competitive but. But that's funny. Again, it's probably like a poor sense of time. You know, like <laughs> they're not going to be able to make any of these changes. Yeah, we would go up to the very last second. That was a nightmare. Through the last second. Um, yeah. Wow. So almost a year at Facebook, um, so much of the secret sauce at Crispin was built on culture. You know, how do we treat each other? Um, what are sort of the rules of engagement between you and your colleagues? What is the shared vision of the company? Um, and then you get to Facebook and they have a culture all their own. What are some similarities that you've seen? What are some differences that you've seen where you, maybe you previously thought like that could never work and, and all of a sudden your eyes are open to a different way of doing things? There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of similarities. I, I would start with that. I mean, um, you know, it felt like, you know, we had a purpose, um, and like to be at a purpose-based company, I think is really, you know, important. But I always thought that like, that like we could change brands to benefit culture and we would change culture to benefit brands. There was always that sort of um, tension or symbiotic relationship there. And to be working at a company where it's about bringing the world closer together um, is very similar to that in, 
in sort of ambition. Um, and that's, that's amazing. Um, there are a lot of posters up on the wall that, you know, some might say are not the culture, but like, those are things that people, you know, think about a lot, you know, and they are things that, you know, keep me up at night. Like, you know, one of them is like, one of them says, um, Oh, what it's well one of them is like what would you do if you weren't afraid you know and it feels like something that i would have thought about a lot uh, at crispin to like um to stay ambitious um you know another one um another one is the why well, i can't remember this one um it's the don't like it's about not being busy um being busy doesn't necessarily equal forward progress or something. That one keeps me up at night because I'm like, am I just making a lot, making a mess and I'm not getting anywhere and I'm not doing anything? Um, all these sorts of um, sort of reminders about how to be, you know, and to be supportive of each other. The culture is incredibly um, supportive. You know, it's like one team, one dream, connected, we can create anything. All these values are just, are there um, that you know, we're there, um, at Crispin for sure. Um, I think one of the interesting, one of the interesting differences is like we had, uh, at Crispin, there was this sort of good enough sucks. Um, and, uh, and at Facebook, the line is done is better than perfect. And I was like, wow, like that was one where I'm like, I don't like, how do I reconcile these things? And I still sort of, you know, but I still wrestle with it. But in the same way that I really embraced CPB culture, um, I've embraced that. And I try to see the, you know, all right, well, what is the real positive in that? And, you know, it's about the fact that like, it's not about making it perfect because we can learn so much by putting it out, you know? Um, and, and so like, I've really, I've really embraced that, like, just keep the, keep the ideas moving. So that was one that was a bit, um, that was a bit different. Another one is like, there's one that is like code solves arguments or something like that. And I was like, that's, that's genius. Like, that's how I think about comps, right? Like we'd sit around talking about an idea. Oh, this could be a good idea. Is that a good idea? And then you talk to the client. Is that, do you think that's a good idea? It might be a good idea. And it's like, just go make it, like build it. And we can, and we'll know if it's good or not, you know? And like, we were, people were always surprised by how much we comped uh, at Crispin. And, and the equivalent of that at Facebook from an engineer's perspective is like building, like you just make the prototype and start moving with it. Um, which is a little bit of um, done is better than perfect as well. And so, you know, I think there's more, there's way more that um, resonates um, than is different, frankly. Right. Um, at CPB, you were the guy who was responsible quite often for being the person in the room with all the answers. And then you take this new job and there's a lot to learn. I'm sure there's a lot that comes naturally to you too, but I'm sure there was a lot to study up quick on. Um, was it an interesting transition going from the guy in the room who's supposed to have all the answers to maybe being the guy in the room who should be asking more questions, you know, for yeah. a little while? It, but it wasn't an interesting transition. It's a terrifying transition yeah, because, that's what you, I meant. because you don't like, like, I just assume if I'm in the room, I'm supposed to have answers and like yeah. that people are going to look at me. And that is a really, you know, that's a, a big moment, right? Like, 
when you work at Facebook and like, maybe it's before you're ready to say we, you know, but like to everybody else that's there, you are we, you are Facebook. And like, it's challenging um, at first. And, you know, but it's a part of the culture to talk about that, you know, like there, there's a lot that we, that individually we can't all know, you know, and you've got to be comfortable with being uncomfortable um, and being willing to go find out those answers and, and help people get the answers, but not being so locked up or protective or trying to, to hide ignorance on something that, you know, you, you're just not authentic. Yeah. You know? Struggle. Can you explain a little, you, you mentioned hackathons. Can you explain a little bit about what that means? Yeah. I mean, hackathons, again, that comes from engineering culture. Um, and hackathons are where it's like, we gotta sol- we've got an issue that we've got to solve or we've got an opportunity that we want to take advantage of. Let's let's come together in in these in small groups and get really tight and focused over a couple of days and really dig in and solve this problem. Um, and essentially, that and hacking is like writing writing code. Um, to me, that's exactly when we've talked about the creative process here. That's the creative process that I believe in. You know, it's like lock the doors, figure it out, and you know work quickly um, with with little time. And get to where you need to get to, and so, you know, we've just borrowed that terminology from the engineers and pulled it into Creative Shop, um, and it's about creating a, a short period of time with all the right players and a mix of players. So, we like to have the clients there. We like to have the creative agency there. If there's multiple creative agencies, we like to have both there. Um, we like to have the media agency there, and then we divide up into teams. Um, and we've got, you know, different expertise on each team and we've got someone from my team is, is put on one of those teams. Um, and we're just trying to come up with solutions and ideas, um, as quickly as we can and then prototyping and then prototyping those ideas. So, um, it's really about the right type of collaboration under, within a certain time constraint and being willing to prototype and move quickly um, to get to, you know, some good answers. And I think that people love it, you yeah. know, and they are generally surprised. You know, you go in thinking maybe why am I here? What am, what are we going to do? And if I had to say, I'd think, well, we can't come up with anything in this amount of time. But, like, it's always, like, a great result, you know. Um, so to me, it's just it's, it's the normal process. Uh, but engineers really embraced it and perfected it, and we borrowed their process, or at yeah. least their word. With things like that, I feel like people come into them, and you look around, and it's a bunch of strangers and a bunch of strange faces, and just your resistance starts to leak through all of your pores. Like, there's just no way this this is going to be productive. And and then yeah. and then if they're done properly, and if people sort of like surrender to the process of it. Um, which they almost always do because you don't really have any other choice and you're sort of, you are locked in a room yeah. for a day and eventually, and eventually there's nothing left to do but surrender. There's always this like triumphant feeling of camaraderie at the end of it. That's really powerful. Yeah, you're right. It's like, a, it's like a joke in a horror movie, you know, it's like, it's like you need, you really need it. And like when you've been in that situation that you thought wasn't going to work and there's so much tension and something good comes out of it, it's extremely rewarding. You yeah. know, I mean, I think the interesting for me is the interesting thing for me is that, when I talk about the creative process, you know, it, to me, everybody's creative. Like, I don't believe there are, like, creatives and, and like, non-creatives. But there are people that are 
have mastered the process, right? And so it's like improv. Ultimately, anybody can do improv, but you need the tools like yes and, you yeah. know? And so that's, to me, I think that's what makes me lock up a little bit, right? Because I'm like, is everybody going to, does everybody have the right tools for moving ideas forward? You know, we all know that idea is a terrible idea, but it might get us to a good idea if we just keep investing in it versus, you know, saying no and, and shutting it down. But, you know, I've just learned there, particularly at, at Facebook, because it's such an inclusive place because we do these hacks. It's like all that stuff is just, there's some truth to it, but the reality is it's like they're just things that I've told myself, you know, uh, to, um, I don't know, make me feel like I really understand the process more than I actually do because you just never know where a great idea is going to come from. And you've got to nurture, you've got to nurture people to, if they don't understand the creative process, teach them because it's more important that you're an ally to them and you get something great out of them because there's something great inside them. And if we can facilitate that, then then it's like added, it's added value versus if they don't know the process, we don't get to find out what's in their brain. That mm-hmm. would be a loss. When you come up through the industry, you work for people who you respect and admire and you take cues from them. Um, and you may have a interaction with them in the kitchen where, you know, they say something that feels totally innocent to them or like a little joke. And the person you say it to, you might have a whole three act play in their head involving you that you're completely unaware of. First at Crispin and now at Facebook, with where you sit and the responsibility that you have, are you sort of aware of the degree to which young creatives are watching you, taking cues from you? Um, not, I mean, I think the, the quick answer is no, but I've become more and more aware of it. And, and you know, what I realized was the power of saying thank you, you know, that right. like to say thank you or to say or to or to tell someone that they've done a good job um it is like it can mean a lot it can really mean a lot and like i feel very lucky that that's true but i never i mean that was not on my agenda i don't think i was a mean person or or not nice and would work would work on ideas and and love to work with people on ideas but um it, it wasn't like we did, there wasn't a lot of you know, thank you and great job. Um, and I've, and I've learned in that way, you know, coming to Facebook was really about, I felt like this, it's like, it's a chance to sort of be my best self, you know, to like, how do I want to be like, I'm, let's start from scratch. How do I carve out my creative time and creative process? How can I actually embrace, I was always a reluctant manager, you know, I was always like, well, this is a waste of time. Like, let's just come up with ideas and then that solves everything. But, you know, there's just a real art to management that I've learned from working with incredible people at Facebook that I aspire to like, how can I be this sort of person that gets more out of people, not just in the way that I did at my last place, but in a more, you know, inspired way. And so just owning the fact that like, you know, letting people know they've done a great job when in fact they have, like, it's not like you're making it up. It's just like putting the, (laughs) putting those words together and having them come out of your mouth or show up in a message or in a post or something is really important. And, um, and I just, you know, 
part of me is sometimes the sort of negative version of myself is like, well, people don't need to hear that. And, you know, like you need to be thinking about something else. Um, but I found that there's just, I should feel more lucky that I'm able to give people, put a little spring in their step if I can and, and help them see something they've done. That's amazing. You told me something at dinner a few months ago that really stuck with me, which is, you know, I was saying like, when you get, the more you get promoted in any business, the less people there are to tell you good job. And the truth is we all sort of need to hear that. Um, and especially if you're a creative person, I think maybe you need a little bit more love <laughs> and affirmation than the, than the average Joe to which you replied, um, the job of a manager is to give the thing that you feel like you need. <laughs> that, you know, I, I do feel that, well, what I, the way I look at it is now, if I'm like, if I do feel really bad and I feel like I need thanks or I need someone to pat me on the back instead of moping, I think, well, if I need that, probably other people need that. Right. And so I kind of go out and actively do it. And the sort of, you know, giving is better than receiving. Ultimately, I find out, whoa, that like I didn't I'm not doing it to like get you to say it back to me. It's in the doing it that like you actually feel a lot better. You know, you didn't need that. You needed to be more outwardly focused and focus on on other people. Um, so, yeah, that's but that's relatively that's pretty new for me. Um, to realize that and sort of challenge myself. Is this something that you really need? Or, you know, if you need it, how bad do the people around you need it? And why don't you go do that instead? It's interesting to hear the ways that you learn from failure and you learn from success. And sometimes you learn from things that maybe are measured in business success, but like you start to see a bigger picture in the way that you want to interact with people. I just love learn. I mean, I was always about like optimizing myself or running little experiments on myself and tests, yeah. you know, on myself. And Facebook is a place I think that really attracts people that like, if you don't want to learn, it's going to be challenging. Like you are, you're having to learn things every day and you've got to be really excited about that. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I, that's just in the same way. Like when I started at Christmas, I was like, you know what? I feel weird. I'm going to just go all in on the agency. It's like, to me, like, I love ideas and like, I like, like, Oh, okay. I'm going to go in on that cultural idea. And I've just really tried to, um, I just embrace change in that way. Yeah. I don't, I don't know why, but I tend to just kind of go all in, in a weird way. Um, and it's been, I don't know, it's been good for me yeah. so far. Two years ago was the first time I ever experienced someone who I mentored and loved come into my office and sit down and say, thank you for giving me opportunities. Thank you for um, teaching me about management and teaching me the creative process. And your reward for all of this is I'm leaving to take another job <laughs> for an extra 50 grand and a, and a title bump. Um, and you were the first person I emailed because I had the same conversation with you. And it's sort of it's sort of crummy, but it's also sort of beautiful because it's the circle of life and no relationship in our industry lasts forever. Some last longer than others. But um, do you ever not take those conversations personally or sort of how do you how do you view those conversations 20 years later? Um, there was always I mean, it's hard, like I want to sound really enlightened here. I mean, there are definitely moments where you just 
think, you know, it's like, it's frustrating. Like we did a campaign for Burger King and it had all these actors in it. It was the sort of office campaign. And I remember we shot it and then you come back the next time we're going to shoot it again. And they're like, well, so-and-so wants more money now. And it's like, well, why? And it's like, well, he just makes more money now. It's like, but isn't that because we put him in the commercial? And like, that's why he's like, so there's this sort of frustration where it's like, like I've invested all this time in this person and like it's being used against me, you know, like, like they like him for all the things that I taught him and now I don't have him. And like, now I got to like do this again. And like, Oh, like, you know, now this is going to, you know, this is so much work for me, you know? Um, There's always a little bit of that. Right. But like, I really do believe, you know, I've had a lot of, great things happen to me in my life and I feel very blessed and lucky. And like, I don't, it's not, it's, it's about people finding the right place for them and for, and being, finding their passion and, and on, on their journey. And I feel like I've gotten, I've definitely, I'm not like that anymore. Um, I would say I've lost a lot of that. And, and frankly, I've been taught a lot of that from, from my peers at Facebook, you know, like there are other, there, you know, there's a group of people that, um, myself included that work, you know, under, uh, Mark Darcy and among that group of people, you know, we have people that want to like, sometimes they move from group to group, you know, even though it's not that big of a deal, we're all creative shop, but like, I was just blown away when there were a couple people that were moving into my group with like, zero tension around it. They're like, that's great. I think that would be a great place for them. And I was like, is this for real? And like, I, it just completely inspired me. And, and like any bit of that sort of old version of me that was there completely went away. I was just blown away by that. Um, just the generosity, you know? Um, and so, you know, it's not about me and I taught them anything. I'm also just don't, subscribe to that as much anymore. Um, you know, I hope that maybe people learn from me, but like anything they've done, they've done on their own and it's about, it's about them. So, um, I'm just happy if they're doing something that they're excited about that, that's going to work for them better. I want the best, I want the best for them because it's, it's that attitude that makes me happy and allows me to be at my best. You know, when you hold negativity inside or grudges inside or you don't make your life about making other people's lives better, ultimately that makes your life worse. So it's kind of technically a bad strategy. Yeah. Um, okay, so I end every one of these uh, conversations with the same question, a segment okay. I call the idea that got away. What was the one idea that you love the most that you just couldn't sell? Oh, gosh. I should have definitely prepared for this ahead of time. Um, you know, actually, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what it was. Um, this was my first. It was at my first job, and um, and it was in uh, Portland, Oregon. We were a small agency, and we were doing work for. Um, it was like, it was basically a Mexican restaurant that was a lot like Chipotle, right? Like. Like you went down the line and you ordered the thing. It was a burrito and you got it. This was a long, 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 long time ago. And we were doing work for them. And (laughs) 
it's it's actually a appropriate story now. And our idea was, you know what, you know what they're missing. They were so authentic, right? They were super authentic, and so we were like, maybe we could have some fun with how authentic they are, and sort of make a joke that sort of drives a lot of tension. And so we thought, let's create this thing called Pumpy. And Pumpy was a nacho cheese dispenser. And we'd make this character called Pumpy. And Pumpy would sit at the end of the, at the, at the, at the very end of the line of the burrito making. And, you know, it was like, I'm Pumpy. And it was this character. <laughs> and like, we thought it was just hilarious because it went really against everything this place stood for. It was this really authentic Mexican place. And uh, they just had zero interest in Pumpy. And, and Pumpy... Pumpy never made it, but like I've never forgotten about Pumpy, and and like it's a dumb idea. I don't know why. Like I'm still still remember because this was literally like, I mean, this was my this is probably in, um, this would have been in like '96, and um, but I've all and I would just always I still had the boards and we pull out the boards. Remember this idea like Pumpy. And then I was just watching TV the other day, and <laughs> Chipotle launched the, the nacho cheese sauce like on their line, and I was like, I cannot believe that just happened. Like, finally they got like they they came out with the nacho cheese because it's like you you would never want to say that you like it, like it's not authentic, but everybody would like press that handle, and it would get so much conversation about the brand. So, and now in your role at Creative Shop, you can collaborate with the agency that works on Chipotle <laughs> to make your puppy dream a reality. I don't, I think they will. <laughs> Maybe I can. Yes. Thank you. I can. I mean, well, look, man, whether inadvertent or not, um, you've been a great mentor to me and had a huge impact on my career and my life. So I thank you. And this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you, Amit. I enjoyed being here. I learned a lot about myself in this. So thanks for having me. Cool. Thanks, man. Okay. Okay, that was Andrew Keller and I talking to ourselves. Thanks to my friends at The One Club. Thank you to my friends at JSM Music. If you like the pod, rate it, share it, and I'll catch you next time. Peace. Peace.